Well, hello everyone and welcome to Grace. We're so glad that you're here today. You know, for many, many people on planet Earth, uh, suffering is a constant companion. Uh, what about you? Maybe for you it's getting that dreaded diagnosis from the doctor that you just did not want to get. How do you respond to that when that comes? Or maybe you have a string of divorces and broken relationships and your current marriage is busted. How do you deal with the pain, the, the suffering of that? Or maybe, maybe you get a call from the principal at the high school and she says, you know, we need to have a conference. I need to talk to you about your son or daughter. Or maybe the boss calls you in and says, you know, it's been such a difficult year and we've had to restructure and make some cuts. I am so sorry. How do you deal with those difficult moments in life when, frankly, the pain seems almost unbearable? What do you do? How do you respond? Because in those moments, it's not a game. No, it's real life. It's your life. It's my life. And I'll tell you that not a week goes by, hardly a day goes by, that I don't get an email, a text, a letter, a word from someone about somebody who's going through suffering. Boy, if that's you today, then God has a word for you from his holy word, the Bible. We're in a series right now called Life Songs, and we're looking at some of these songs from the Bible that sing to our soul, and they not only sing to us and meet needs we have, but they make, they make our souls sing as well. Today, we're going to look at one of them that's called a lament psalm. There are a number of these. A lament psalm. And it's for those times when you're really going through it and things just aren't working out the way you had hoped. Now, David is the human author of this psalm. He's the author of about 73 of these in the book called Psalms. There are numerous other authors the sons of Korah, the sons of Asaph, and a handful of others. And there are about 50 psalms that are sometimes called orphan songs. We don't really know who wrote them, humanly. But we know that they're inspired by God, and they're part of his word, and boy, do they sing to our souls. So if you have a Bible, grab one today, and let's look at Psalm 13. Just open it up there. This is a short psalm with only six verses in it, but I want to tell you, this song sings to my soul so many times, especially when I'm suffering. David is going through some things here that we're going to talk about, and I think that you and I can really identify with what he's going through. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must, must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long 
will my enemy triumph over me. Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. Now let's push pause right there and start unpacking this life song a little bit. What in the world is going on in David's life that he would cry out with such despair and hopelessness and essentially say, God, where are you? Well, I think one of the things that's going on here is it seems that God is silent. David's going through some stuff and he's calling out in frustration to God, where are you, God? And he wants to get an answer because he's sensed the Lord's prompting before. He sensed his guidance. But in this particular case, it's like God is totally silent and the heavens are brass. Now, I, I wanna be clear that when I talk about God being silent, or God speaking to us. I, I'm not talking necessarily about him coming out with an audible voice with words that we could hear or measure in decibels. Now, there are some wonderful friends that I have across the country, dear friends in this church, seasoned Christians who tell me that has happened to them, and I believe them. It certainly happened in Scripture. And we have no reason theologically to believe that God would not speak audibly, but that's never occurred in my experience. But I'll tell you what I have had over and over again. Through my years of walking with God, over and over, in many different occasions, through many different seasons, seasons of life, I've had God nudge me, prompt me, put an idea in my mind. Give me a moment of clarity that was so crystal clear. I knew it was from him. I've had God put on my heart a sense of oughtness that you ought to speak to this person and now. And I just knew that that was God speaking to me, guiding me. And I want to tell you, and those of you who've experienced that, you know what I'm talking about. It is one of the most awesome feelings in the world to know that you're walking in step with God's spirit, that you're living in the center of his will, and boy, it is exciting to know that God is speaking. But I want to tell you, if we're being honest today, we'd have to admit there are many times probably throughout the years that we want an answer from God and it seems like he's silent. You're praying about that next step in your life, that career move. You're wondering about your family and what you ought to do about a situation. You're praying about where you ought to go to school or whatever the deal is and it seems like God is silent. And I wanna tell you brothers and sisters, when that happens, it is awfully difficult to deal with suffering is a companion of many people around this planet. But I think a second thing that David is going through that surely we can identify with as well is that it seems not only that God is silent, but it seems that God is distant. Let me try to explain. Now, when we read these life songs in the book of Psalms, we try to reconstruct things and we try to make educated guesses at what the, what the Germans would call the sits in Laban, the setting in life, 
What is the context in which this was written? And on a few occasions, we know when it was. We have a, a real sense of confidence, but often we are not sure. Many scholars, though, believe while they can't pinpoint the year, they can pinpoint the season in David's life when he undoubtedly wrote this life song. You see, when David was just a teenager, 14 to 16 years old probably, the prophet and priest Samuel came out to his farm came out to Jesse's place and met all the sons of Jesse and David was the youngest and David was anointed as the next king of Israel. Imagine how that would impact your life. Just a kid, just a teenager, but he's given this incredible promise about what God is gonna do through his life and that came when he was in his probably mid-teens. But the truth of the matter is, it was a long time till that promise was fulfilled. You see, right after that, almost everything David put his hand to turned to gold. He was incredibly successful. So successful, it became a problem. And Saul, the actual king at the time, Saul became insanely jealous of David and literally tried to take his life on a few occasions. Even the young women in the country created a little song. Saul has killed his thousands, but David, his tens of thousands, David was like a rock star in the country. And that wasn't lost on Saul, and he was incredibly jealous. So he literally, get this, although he'd already been given this awesome promise by God, anointed as the next king, he literally had to spend years as a, on the run as a fugitive. First, he hid out in the caves of Adullam, trying to get away from Saul and his men. And on a number of occasions, he even had an opportunity to kill Saul, but he refused. He said, how can I raise my hand against the Lord's anointed? He believed, even though life wasn't turning out the way he wanted at the time, he believed that God still had his back and that God was in charge of all of these events, as painful as they were. And so he continued to trust in God. And then later he went to the desert of Engedi and spent some time there. Later, as Saul and his men continued to pursue David, he spent some time in Gath where he continued to fight against the enemies of God. And it wasn't until he was 30 years old, imagine that. It wasn't until he was 30 years old that he finally got word that Saul had been killed in battle and now David in triumph, went to Jerusalem and was a second time anointed as the king. But imagine how disillusioning that must have been. And there may be a situation in your life where you sense that God was giving you a promise, but boy, it isn't working out that way right now. And can I tell you something I've discovered? Somewhere between the promise and the fulfillment of the promise, we are very prone to get off track, brothers and sisters. Because it's hard to endure suffering when you're living on that in-between time and you feel that life is just unjust and it just isn't working out the way you want it. Hey, let me share with you a time in my life when that occurred. I was 23 years old. 
and I, this, the summer was 1984, and I used to refer to this summer as like the worst season of my life. Let me tell you a little bit about it. I was living in Louisville, Kentucky. I was a seminary student working on a Master of Divinity degree. I'd been through two solid years, and on this particular summer, I was living at the seminary, third floor Stampy dorm. The seminary is pretty well abandoned during the summer. There's not a lot of students there, although some J terms are offered, J terms where you have like classes that are three hours long, but you only take one class for like three weeks. So I'm taking this J term in the Passion Narratives in the Gospels with Dr. David Garland. I get up late in the morning because I've worked late the night before, and I go to class for three hours. And I get out of class, try to grab a bite to eat, have to quickly put on my work clothes and go to work. I had a really, really cushy job, though, I want to tell you. I was a pizza delivery guy at Mr. Gaddy's. I still have a place in my heart today for people who deliver pizza. You know why? Because I know what that feels like. And for a long time, that was my job. That's the way I earned a living. And I delivered that pizza in my sporty 1972 brown Ford Maverick. Yes, this car was 12 years old at the time. And every time I got a couple hundred dollars in my checking account, somehow my car found out about it and decided to tear up. And so I was constantly having to fix this crazy car, but it was the only means I had of kind of making a living and getting around. And that's what life looked like. Class for three hours, starting at noon, get out at 3 to 3.30, get ready, go to work, work a complete shift all the way to 1 or 2 in the morning, mop the bathrooms and the Mr. Gaddy's Pizza Place, clean everything up, help close the store down. And I would come home, and if you remember, in 1984, it was the Summer Olympics in Los Angeles. Remember that? Some of you do. And I would come home tired from work, and I would just veg for a while watching reruns of the Olympics and what had occurred earlier that day. Go to sleep, get back up, and do it all over again. And I, st I was feeling sorry for myself. I just barely had enough money to get by. I had a plastic container on my chest of drawers in my dorm room, and I'd come home at night and throw the money that I'd gotten from tips and that, and that's what I was kind of living on. I was living on the edge, and boy, you talk about God being silent and distant. You see, I had left home in order to follow Jesus and his call in my life. I was not a mediocre Christian in terms of my commitment. I was full out committed to the Lord. I'd been preaching for years. I'd given my entire life to him. But I began to think, God, I was asking what theologians call the theodicy question. It's a question about justice in the universe. And I was thinking, God, is this really the way you treat your friends? If it is, no wonder you don't seem to have many these days. <laughs> I was really questioning God's justice. But here's the straw that broke the camel's back. One of my dear sisters, in the middle of the summer of 84, when all this is going on, and I'm already having a pity party, she sends me a letter, and in the letter, she encloses a newspaper clipping that she's cut out of a guy that I had gone to high school with. Let me tell you about this guy. I'd played basketball, he had played football. We knew each other. He was not a believer. I was a committed Christian in high school, very faithful to the Lord. I had shared my faith with God. I'll call him John, not his real name, just to protect his identity. 
And I had shared the gospel with John, but he wanted nothing to do with Christ, nothing to do with Christianity. He was living the pagan life. He partied not only on the weekend, he partied all week long. And he wanted nothing to do with the Lord. But when John went away to college, he was gloriously saved as a freshman. Really converted to Christ. It was awesome. And he soon got a job as a youth pastor in a local church in his college town. And I had heard through the grapevine that he was making $30,000. Let me tell you, folks, that was a lot of money in those days as a full-time student and a youth pastor. And he wasn't delivering pizza. And I began to add all this up. You know, God, remember me? I, hey, you remember Remember me, I'm the one who left home in order to follow you. Hey, I was faithful to you back when John was a pagan. Is this the way things ought to work out? But here's the straw that broke the camel's back. In the newspaper clipping that my sister sent, it was a picture of the engagement, the engagement picture of John and Miss Alabama. Miss Alabama, true story, had fallen in love with John, and they were all smiles, and they were so happy as they were going to get married. And I looked to heaven, and I said, God, I deserve to marry Miss Alabama, not John. I'm the one who's been following you faithfully. I was struggling with the injustice of it all. And I literally tacked that newspaper clipping on the bulletin board of my hall, and wrote across the article, is there really any justice in this world? <laughs> you ever been there? You ever been there? What do you do when you feel like you're suffering? When you feel like it's not working out the way it ought to work out? What do you do then? Well, I want you to notice a big shift that goes on in this psalm. We went through verse four, and David asked five questions in the first two verses that apparently he has no answer to. He's filled with hopelessness and despair. He's sighing at life and how unjust life seems to be. But a dramatic shift happens in verses five and six. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. Do you see what's happening here in this song? It goes from sighing to singing. It goes from despair to prayer. It goes from profound hopelessness to confident hope that God's got me, and I'm going to rejoice in his salvation. Now, what in the world made that difference? What made that difference for David in his life? I believe the answer is this. He came to a profound understanding that while God may seem silent at times, and while he may seem distant, here's the truth, God will never leave your side. Would you write that down in your notes? God will never leave your side. And some of you, that's honestly what you need to take and hold on to today. And just let that sink in to your soul. God will never leave your 
side. That's how he could go from sighing to singing. That's how he could go from despair to prayer and from hopelessness to hope. You see, I've preached here long enough to know that in every row here today, there's a story of pain. I know some of your stories so well. The struggle you've had with your health, the way your heart's been broken by your children. I know about the difficulty of dealing with your parents or the in-laws. I know that some of you have had financial disaster occur in your life, and boy, the bottom just fell out. I know that some of you have had relational difficulties where it's just made your life virtually a living hell. And I want to tell you, if you're ever going to go from sighing to singing, you've got to understand that God will never leave your side. One of those families that's suffering right now, and there's so many, uh, is Larry and Susie Rosenman. And I share all of this with their permission, of course. I had a chance to meet with Larry and Susie this week. We just sat down and chatted for a while. And they're a part of our Greenbush congregation. They're active there. And they've been a part of Grace for 19 years. Larry played bass on many different worship teams at Grace. Susie has sang in choirs and vocal groups and worship teams. They have hosted small groups in their home. They have led a number of small groups, have been very active in serving and in ministry. Awesome people. They are Christians who get it, if you know what I mean. But guess what? Bad things happen even to people like Larry and Susie. And Larry has Alzheimer's right now, and it is progressing fast. And so we sat down, and we cried together, and we laughed together, and we recalled some old times, and we talked about the loss that is involved in this, and they talked about their genuine struggles. But can I tell you the truth? I was so blessed with meeting with Larry and Susie. You know why? Because they've gone from sighing to singing. They said literally there are times now, knowing what's happening to Larry, that they will in their home just grab some musical instruments and just begin to worship God. And they talked about the quiet times that they have together and how they go to God's word and open it up. And those, those times have to be a little shorter these days. But they ask God to feed their souls through his word. Larry and Susie Rosenman are examples of mature Christians that have gone from sighing to singing, from despair to prayer, because they get it. They know that God will never leave their side. Now let me get intensely personal here for a moment. You see, here's what I'm concerned about with some of you, that your view of God is that God is silent and distant and always uninvolved in your life. And if that's your view of God, you're never going to get to singing, you're never going to get to prayer, and you're never going to get to confident hope. You're going to be stuck somewhere. You're going to be stuck. The truth of the matter is that God is like a shepherd to you if you belong to him. If you've yielded your life to him and call him your Lord, listen, he is your shepherd. In fact, could I just show you something real quick? Would you take your Bible, if you've got it open there, and would you just go 10 chapters ahead to the best-known song in the whole life song book called Psalms? 
It's Psalm 23. It's been memorized by millions of people. It's brought more hope and more comfort to more people throughout history than any other piece of literature. I have shared this song at gravesides with grieving families and had people join in and quote it with me. I've shared it at bedsides in hospitals, and it's brought hope and peace to people who are going through the valley of the shadow of death. I've never seen a song so powerful when it comes to bringing hope and courage. And here's what it says. Your translation may be a little bit different, but David, the same author of Psalm 13, says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yes, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Catch this line. For you are with me. Did you catch that line? For you are with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. See, here's what I'm concerned about. If you never get to see that the Lord is your shepherd literally walking with you and that he will never lead your side, side, you will never go from sighing to singing. David could actually say in Psalm 56 verse 3, when I am afraid, I will trust in you. Can you say that today? When I am afraid, I will trust in you. And when you know that the Lord is your shepherd, you know that he's using whatever you're going through for your good and for his glory. There's a great little book called See You at the House by Bob Benson. And in this book, Bob Benson, the author, tells about seeing a dear friend of his, a guy named W.T. W.T. had had a heart attack two years earlier. Two years earlier, he'd gone, really gone through a tough season. And Bob hadn't seen him for two years. And so when he sees him, he asks him, he says, W.T., how'd you like your heart attack? (laughs) W.T. said, how do I like my heart attack? What do you mean? He said, it nearly killed me. It scared me to death. How do I like it? I didn't like it. Bob said, would you like to do it again? (laughs) He said, no, I wouldn't like to do it again. He said, would you recommend it for someone else? He said, no. And then Benson asked his friend, does your life mean more to you now than it did before? W.T. said, well, well, yes. And you and Nell have always had a beautiful marriage, but, but are you closer now than you ever were before? Well, well, sure. Well, how about your new granddaughter, he said. He said, well, I hold her a little bit more tightly these days. Do you have a new compassion for people, a, a deeper understanding, a deeper sympathy? W.T. said, well, I sure do. Bob Benson paused and said, W.T., how'd you like your heart attack? And silence was his answer. 
And Benson wraps up the story like this. Now, neither I nor he would tell you to rush right out and have a heart attack. But there's a good majesty in the process. Sometimes the good shines brighter than ever when contrasted with the darkness. Well said. And perhaps for you, it wasn't a heart attack. Maybe it was the pain of that miscarriage or the pain of your parents always comparing you unfavorably to your older brother. Or maybe it's the emotional scars of that abusive relationship. There's a majesty in it. There's a purpose in suffering. Because here's what I've learned, friends, that even in the hardest moments of life are the seeds of a fruitfulness that we could never foresee. I'm so glad I went through the summer of 84 because I can identify with people who are lonely and feel like life is unjust and who feel like they're barely getting by and struggling and nobody cares and even God seems so far away. But let's ask another little question here as we go down home stretch. Even when God is distant like that, can we expect to hear from God? You know, I believe, I believe that we can expect God to speak to us and communicate with us. I believe that with all my heart as a Christian. You say, but Pastor Rex, how does he do that? He does it primarily with me through his word. That's why there's no substitute for just being in God's word every single day. He does it with me in seasons of prayer where he nudges me and brings things to my memory and impresses me with certain directions and clarity. He does it for me through mature Christians that are in my life. God speaks to me through my wife Debbie constantly because she's a whole lot closer to God than I am. And God speaks to me through the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And here's the deal, when God nudges you, when God tugs at your heart, you need to really follow through and act on that. I wanna share one other of these kingdom assignment stories. This one comes from a woman named Barbara in our Saratoga campus. During Pastor Rex's Moved with Compassion sermon, she writes, we noticed the orange envelope in the seat back pocket and wondered what it was. When Pastor Rex later explained that the envelope was what it was, was all about, we were excited for the opportunity to take action and be able to bless someone with this gift. She says, we had some initial thoughts where the money should go, but knew we needed to seek God's wisdom before we did anything. Two ideas kept coming to me. One was to help a friend of mine who's a missionary in Belize. She and her Belizean husband live in a village where they have taken over a church as pastor and wife. Their church is struggling financially. However, I kept having this tugging at my heart for the children in Saratoga, Barbara writes. Tugging in her heart. I knew God was speaking to me. You see, I'm a teacher in the Saratoga Springs City School District, and I see kids come to school hungry daily. Many people don't even realize the number of kids right here in Saratoga Springs who come to school daily without having had a meal since lunch the previous day at school. These kids are held to the same standards and expectations as their peers who get three warm meals plus snacks every day. 
They try so hard, but their little bellies are hungry and their brains are tired from lack of nutrition. A couple of years ago, the Snack Pack program was formed by one of my colleagues. This Saratoga Nutrition Assistance for Children is designed to meet the needs of hungry kids on weekends when other resources are not available to them. The program provides backpacks filled with food that's child-friendly, shelf-stable, and easily consumed. Bags are packed every week by volunteers and discreetly distributed to participating children every Friday afternoon. All six elementary schools, the middle and high schools are all working together to help our children who are considered chronically hungry. And then Barbara lists the food and what is in the backpack, some good nutritious stuff. So after much prayer, we decided that we would give half of the money to the snack pack program and half to the church in Belize. When I told the woman in charge of the snack pack program about the sermon and the assignment and that we felt that God was telling us to bless the snack pack program, she just wept. She told me that they've literally run out of any monies that had been donated and are relying purely on food donations that they get from families. She also said that they didn't know how they were going to fill the food bags next month. She said the money would buy 50 loaves of bread that 50 families would be able to make sandwiches for the week for their whole family. When I came home and told my husband about my conversation at school with the snack pack coordinator, we decided right then and there that we should give the whole $100 and we would match it to give the church in Belize another 100 when I told my friend from Belize, she was blown away. She said her initial thoughts of where the money could go would be to get tables and chairs for the preteen class in order for them to be able to sit during church. Another need, she said, this would help is for a widow who can't afford to purchase a clean barrel of water, which cost around $20, that would provide water for washing, cooking, and bathing. And Barbara concludes, we are so grateful that God chose us to bless others. Thank you, Grace Fellowship. Could we just give God praise for Barbara and her husband and for their obedience. Now, did you notice that phrase in there? God was tugging at my heart. I knew God was speaking to me. When God nudges you that way, be sure that you obey. So here's my final word to you as I close today. What we've seen in this song for suffering is that David has gone from sighing to singing, from despair to prayer, from hopelessness and questions to confident hope with some real good answers. And here's my final word to you. I just... Believe today, and I'll say it again, repeat what I said before, some of you are stuck. And unless you stop holding on to that pain from the past, you're not gonna be able to move forward. Let me put it to you like this. In the Head Start program, when I was just a little bitty dude, five, six years old, I, for the first time in my life, saw monkey bars. You guys know what monkey bars are? Out on the playground. And while I climbed up with great fear and trepidation up those stairs, 
up those bars, to get on those monkey bars, and to go across those. That was my goal, to see if I could go across those monkey bars. And in my little mind, that seemed like a million miles high. The ground was so far away. And so even though I was so afraid, I started out across those monkey bars, and you grab one, right? But you're holding on back here. And what you soon realize is that you're never going to be able to navigate this unless you let go. Here's what I've learned about pain and navigating the painful things of life. It's kind of like crossing the monkey bars. Unless at some point you let go, you just can't move forward and you remain stuck. I pray that today you will see that God is your shepherd and that he's got you and that he's never gonna leave your side and that he can literally take you from this hopelessness and despair. He can take you to a place of singing. He's done it for so many. He can do it for you. There is purpose in what you're going through. And let me say it to you again, even in the hardest moments of life, there are the seeds of a fruitfulness that you could never foresee, but one day you will. Because one day, one day, and you may see it before this, but one day Jesus is gonna return. And he's gonna wipe out all of the pain and suffering. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order, order of things has passed away. Oh, how I long for that day. Jesus told us he was going to do that. He gave a promise. But remember, somewhere between the promise and the fulfillment of the promise, we find ourselves asking, oh, Lord, how long? The Allied forces found etched on a crumbling wall in Germany after World War II the following message. On the wall of this abandoned house, some survivor of the Holocaust had scratched a, a star of David, and beneath that star were these words. I believe in the sun, even when it does not shine. I believe in love, even when it is not shown. I believe in God, even when he is silent. Father, help those today that are going through suffering and very, very unpleasant situations. God, I ask in Jesus' name that you would help them to see that you will never leave their side. You are their shepherd, and even though they walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you're right there with them. And help them to be able to say with David, when I am afraid, oh, I will trust in you. Thank you that you can take us from sighing to singing, from despair to prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.